Welcome to episode 35 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, I talk cybersecurity and your schools with Doug Levin, National Director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange. But before I get to Doug, i got a couple news stories to talk about to help, of course, increase your cybersecurity awareness. The first one has to do with the Emotet botnet, which was a huge botnet recently taken over by the FBI and some other federal groups worked together for that. Uh, as a result of that particular botnet takedown, they identified 4.3 million compromised email addresses that were harvested from within that botnet. In other words, the actors who were utilizing that botnet, which was used for anything from ransomware to banking trojans and other threats through phishing and malware-laden spam. They were using these emails and, and information they had to, to target other users. So if you go to the website, haveibeenpwned.com, and that's spelled H-A-V-E-I-B-E-E-N-P-W-N-E-D.com, and put in your email address, it'll tell you if yours was one of the emails that was located on this botnet. And that will also give you information as far as what other information may have been um, obtained by the bad guys with this particular botnet. And so it'll allow you to say, okay, for that email address, I was likely using this password. I probably should go change that password because we really should not use the same password across multiple login areas. I understand. I've had talked about this many times that keeping a, a lot of passwords can be problematic, but there's certainly password managers and, and encrypted spreadsheets you can do to, to keep track of it. But the key being, you know, obviously for your email, social media, financial logins, you should have separate and distinct passwords. If you're one of the 4.3 million email addresses that um, were identified, then you want to make sure you kind of figure out what password were you using and change that across all of your platforms. So that's available for you there to see if you're a victim there. And if you've not been to Have I Been Pwned before, it has 11 billion compromised accounts and it'll tell you where your information was compromised and taken. I had a friend call me a couple weeks ago. Omri, his wife had a uh, fake Instagram account created in her name and her Facebook account looked like it had been taken over. And so uh, they went on there and then they were kind of surprised to see how many times their email address had been used or compromised through a variety of breaches they had no no idea about. Part of that has to do with reporting requirements. And there really isn't any reporting requirements within the United States for the most part. Uh, there is for some certain sectors, but you know it's hard to keep track of, of where all the stuff, where all of your information has been lost based on all of the cyber activity that's currently going on. Article number two caught my attention simply because of the nature at which it was talking about um, ransomware. And it has to do with a task force, a multi-government task force. Here's the, here's the headline. Let me, let me step back a second. The headline from ThreatPost.com. This is Tara Seals reporting. A multi-government task force plans to take down the ransomware economy. All right. It's a great headline. I'm somewhat skeptical. Because let's be honest, bad guys are always ahead of law enforcement when it comes to cybercrime. Not to say that law enforcement doesn't have cybersecurity or cybercrime-related wins. They do, but they are much more infrequent compared to how successful the bad guys are. But that's okay. I wanted to go into this article with an open mind. And it talks a lot, a lot about the stuff that you would see in, in typical you know, articles of this nature where a task force was set up to deal with something. But um, it, 
the there was a report the Institute for Security and Technology put together a coalition which included 60 members from software companies, government agencies, cybersecurity vendors, financial services companies, nonprofits, and so on. Uh, and that's great. I, I think that you need to bring people together both from the public and private sector to figure out a way to come up with solutions to deal with the cybersecurity issues or cybercrime issues that we have. Their goal here, they came up with a bunch of different framework ideas. Um, the most notable aspect of the framework they came up with is that it targets the entire criminal ecosystem around ransomware. For instance, part of the plan is to prosecute and disrupt the dark web marketplaces where ransomware gangs flog their wares. Now, my first question there is, were they not already doing this already? And again, I'm not trying to downplay the work this group does or plans to do. I hope they are successful in their efforts. But that sentence leads me to believe that there's the first problem is this was already going on. I would like to think, do you really have to say you're going to prosecute people doing bad things? That's my two cents on that, but I digress. The plan also calls for disabling hosting services that facilitate ransomware campaigns. Okay, great. Fantastic idea. Is China going to go along with this? Is Russia going to go along with this? Let's say that these hosting services are in NATO company, countries. Let's say they're in the United States. Certainly, the United States is going to identify those, take those down. Great Britain is going to identify those, take those down. What if they're in China? What if they're in Russia? Is, is the Chinese government, the Russian government, going to look at this task force and say, oh, okay, let me take down that infrastructure for you? They are not going to do that. I worked with the Russians in 20, 2007, 2008 on a variety of cybercrime issues that the FBI was working at the time. I was try, trying to create a working relationship with the, the Russian authorities to find Russian hackers and bring them to justice was our ideal goal. Obviously, it was naive then. It's probably naive now. But anyway, so that was the goal. We had identified infrastructure as part of what was called the Russian Business Network, RBN. It was a huge criminal hosting enterprise that was probably the largest at the time in 2007. And the Russian FSB had told me they had identified the location of where this place was was housed, and they were going to take it down. I'm like, this is great. This is a win for everybody. So then I traveled to Russia to have a conference with these FSB folks. Uh, FSB is now the current, what used to be the KJB, broke into a bunch of different sections. FSBs are... Um, somewhat equivalent to the FBI, but they said they went to raid the location where the Russian business network was located and they showed up and everything was gone. There were wires hanging out of the ceiling. Chances are they had used the MVD, which is another Russian um, uh, law enforcement entity to, or, or done something to ident to tell the folks at this facility, Hey, they're going to come raid your site. I'm using air quotes around the word raid. Uh, and then so when they showed up, oh, they, they had moved. So sorry about that. Needless to say, the Russian business network continued on for years afterwards. For all I know, it's still going on now. But again, another sentence here, disabling hosting services. I Okay. I, again, hope it works. I'm a little skeptical. Another aspect of the plan is to centralizing expertise when it comes to putting the squeeze on cryptocurrency markets and cryptocurrency seizure. Again, I will go back to the fact that if... For whatever reason, the information within the blockchain on the cryptocurrency is housed or has some home within a country that's not going to help you. So if I'm a bad guy, I'm going to purchase my cryptocurrency from a cryptocurrency exchange in China. They're not going to give you any information on who did that. So again, it's a good idea. I hope it works out. I'm skeptical as to the real, what the results will be. 
Uh, then there's a paragraph here, perhaps most interesting, and this is part I do like. The framework would require companies to disclose their ransomware incidents as well as their ransom payment plans to the U.S. Treasury Department. This is a fantastic idea. Force disclosure of the incidents. I would add to that, force a postmortem of the incident. How did they get in? What did they do when they were in there? And how do you look for indicators of that compromise on other networks? This is where you will really go to helping to eradicate ransomware. Again, it has to do with awareness. A lot of ransomware starts with spear phishing emails. People don't know what they're looking for. Um, So I think this particular part of this framework is a great idea. I hope they can pull it off. So that is your ransomware news for the week. And uh, so again, as I like to say, I I do this part of the podcast to help you understand the the news that's going on there around cybersecurity because Knowledge is protection. That's kind of the way I look at it. So with that, let's talk about cybersecurity and schools. I'm honored to welcome Doug Levin to the CyberGuy podcast. Doug is the National Director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange, a nonprofit threat intelligence sharing community for school districts to prevent and respond to cyber threats together. Doug, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure to join you. So talk a little bit about, about your background, what, what got you into cybersecurity, what does your organization do, and then we'll roll into the, the problem with cybersecurity in schools. Well, I think uh, like at least some proportion of those who work in cybersecurity, uh, this is not uh, my first calling uh, by any stretch. In fact, you know, I studied uh, English as, a, you know, as an undergraduate in college, and while I was always interested in technology. It was not something that actually I uh, pursued as a career. So I spent uh, about 20 years working in the education policy, um, advocacy, and research communities. Now, some of that work was done on, you know, the potential for education technology to make a difference for kids uh, and change, you know, schooling as we know it. Uh, But it is only in recent years where the issues of cybersecurity started coming to my attention. And uh, I had served some time as executive director of the State Educational Technology Directors Association, but this association that represents technology leadership in state departments of ed across the country. And one of the issues that started to bubble up while I was there was this issue of student data privacy, right? Uh, And concerns about how third parties, you know, how they might be using or maybe even abusing students' data in, in part in their relationship with schools, in part. Um, and uh, as I started to look at those issues and learn more and more, you know, the concerns always around student data privacy were that something might happen in the future. There was a hypothetical that could happen that would be really bad. Um, and what I started seeing local news reports, regional news reports about school districts that were experiencing actual incidents and not just data breaches, um, but ransomware incidents, uh, phishing attacks. Um, you know, denial of service attacks, all sorts of things. It was like, gee, that's uh, interesting. I'm not surprised because schools are using more and more technology that they're going to experience the same kinds of issues as any other type of organization. Uh, But when I went looking for information on what we knew about how frequently these were happening to schools and what were the trends and uh, how were schools responding, did they have enough support? I couldn't find anything uh, available. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that's done in this space, but nothing that really spoke to me as somebody who had you know, worked in policy in K-12 and done research in K-12. 
so I started assembling information just myself, and I launched something called the K-12 Cyber Incident Map, where I just started cataloging, cataloging publicly disclosed incidents about cybersecurity. Um, that led me to speaking and meeting all sorts of amazing people working on this issue around the country. And then led me to uh, some colleagues where we decided that, you know, schools needed more help. And that led us to launching this new organization, this new nonprofit, the K-12 Security Information Exchange. It's the first national nonprofit dedicated solely to helping schools protect themselves from emerging cybersecurity threats. So um, it's a new organization. We're growing, you know, rapidly. Uh, our members are school districts, charter schools, private schools, even regional and state education agencies. Uh, but now, you know, instead of just sort of documenting this issue sort of as a research and a policy guy, uh, I'm now working hand in hand uh, with folks who are helping, you know, school districts to protect themselves by, by um working together, sharing threat intelligence, but also best practices and uh, sort of real-time information about what they're seeing on their network. So it's, it's exciting work. There's a, lo- there's a lot of work to be done. I don't want to uh, uh, suggest otherwise, but um, it's meaningful and I think it's very much needed. Oh, absolutely. And I, and you came to my, came to my attention because I was doing, um, I was trying to create a program for a local school district here and I wanted some resources on, you know, how bad is cybersecurity when it comes to 12? And I found your state of K-12 cybersecurity 2020 year in review. And I'm like, this is great information. Why do not more people know of this? And so I started reviewing your site. And so I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email Doug and, and see if I can bribe him or beg him to be on my podcast to talk about this thing because I'm a former teacher myself. And so this is important to me is trying to blend education and cybersecurity because like, I mean, you, you, your site makes the perfect point, especially with the incident map, that this is a huge, huge issue that I don't think it's enough reporting because it's not sexy enough. But so with your, with your site, how do, how do schools become involved with it? Or do they become involved with it? Do individual districts have to, request access to get your information? How do you, how do you blend all that together to share your intelligence throughout the community? Right. So the information about uh, K-12 cybersecurity incidents, and even that, that report that you mentioned, the state of K-12 cybersecurity, that's freely available uh, to uh, all, all takers. And that's available at k12cybersecure.com. But for those school districts that are looking to join this uh, community of peers to work together to help protect themselves um, I'd actually direct them to a different website. That's k126.org, uh, k12six.org. Um, and you do need, we do need to qualify you as an eligible member uh, to, to belong. And uh, the first year of membership in that organization is free and no obligation. So we'd encourage you to just come and uh, check it out. And we, we are working with schools and school districts of all sizes uh, some, for some pretty large ones. Uh, all the way to some some you know uh, single school independent schools uh, or districts. So um, really, you know, the more uh, folks we can get involved, uh, the more we can help. And that's you know? great. You do the vetting because if I'm a bad guy and I know this site, this 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 resource exists, I'm going to say I'm going to go become a member of that. And uh, so how so that's it's it's good. Trust, to- trust trust is yeah trust is fundamental to what we're doing. Sure, right? sure. So if people don't feel like they. They can trust uh, the organization and trust the other members of the organization, then that falls apart. So, um, you know, one of the things that we subscribe to is something we call the traffic light protocol for information sharing. And so that's that's a that's sort of a commonly used in the sort of threat intelligence space. But whoever is sharing information gets to decide how widely it might be distributed. 
And um, so it can maybe, you know, for people's eyes only, or maybe you could share this with everybody who's part of a K-12 school, but we take those obligations very, very seriously. And I think it's important to, to keep that sort of trust and comfort in sharing where otherwise people may feel like, you know, I don't want to talk about this. This might reflect poorly on my district right. or, or if I'm the IT person, it may reflect poorly on me, right? Maybe people may assume that I didn't do my job, right? Well, you know, it, it, it's, there's no such thing as 100% security. When it when it's happening to the biggest corporations, uh, to the federal government, you know what what chance does a school district have against a motivated, uh, skilled actor? And the, right. the answer to that is really very very little. Yeah, so I'm looking on on your K12 Cybersecure.com site, the incident map, and so there's been 11, according to updated chart, I assume 1,180 incidents in 2016. And it looks like there's no state that has been spared. I assume there's a that's there's correct. Something yeah, every state. state, every state, uh, schools from Alaska to Florida, Maine to Hawaii, some of the very largest in the country to some of the very smallest. And what is, uh, if, if there oh, if there are a little bit of 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 a uh, uh, biases, if you will, in the data that, that it does look like school districts that are a little bit larger, that have more students and teachers, maybe more devices connected to the internet, seem to maybe be disproportionately uh, represented in, uh, on the map. But, um, you know, honestly, I think that's a function of uh, their threat profile. You know, again, just with more devices, more users, um, the odds are greater that they're going to get uh, hit. Uh, unfortunately, what we've also seen over the last couple of years is that threat actors are starting to target schools specifically and doing research on schools. Mm-hmm. And while we don't think of schools as wealthy organizations because they don't have enough money to do all they would like to do for kids, um, you know, some of the larger school districts across the country have you know multi-billion dollar budgets. You know, they're maintaining hundreds or or at least dozens of school buildings transportation service, food service, they may be the largest employer in their community, right? I mean, schools, districts can be quite large organizations. And while they don't have a lot of extra money, there is a lot of money that comes and goes over the course of the year to pay for all the services that they're providing. So what is the most common attack type? I'm looking at the chart and there's a, it looks like the color green is the most frequent. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I, I could look, I'm sure very closely, but I'll let you explain it. What does the green stand for? What, as far as being that attack type? So the green off the top of my head, I can't, I don't remember that, but I can tell you that data breaches in general are the sort of single most commonly experienced incident. And that, that could involve student data as well as staff data. Right. Mm -hmm. And some of that data is also historical, right, because schools maintain records not only on former students, uh, but uh, former staff. Uh, And if you think about it, actually, a funny story. My uh, my father's retired living down in Florida, as one does when one is retired and uh, wanted to audit some classes at a local university as a senior citizen. And they said, that's terrific. But we actually need a copy of your transcripts uh, just to sort of qualify you for whatever reason. And he's 70 something and why he has to dig up his transcripts. He didn't know, <laughs> but he called his university and lo and behold, they still have his educational records that they could forward to the university of Florida. So he could audit his classes. So that is not uncommon, right. For schools to actually even have an obligation to maintain his data. So in some cases uh, when a school district experiences a data breach incident, you know, they're, they're involving hundreds of thousands of individuals. Right. Because it's not just the current uh, students and staff, but going back five, 10, even 20 years or longer, depending on how their IT systems are set up. 
The, the other point of vulnerability around data breaches is actually school district vendors. Mm. And so some of the largest vendors in the K-12 space serve not just tens or even hundreds of school districts, but thousands. And that, that represents sort of a single point of failure right. in that system. And there have been instances where uh, school district vendors have been compromised and that has led to compromises, not just of one customer, right, but of all of their customers. And it's just a massive, massive uh, impact. Yeah, third party third party access seems to be a huge issue that doesn't seem to get enough play um, because it's not even just it's not just within education. It's it's all sectors are having that issue where you you may have the greatest cybersecurity for your on premises stuff, but as soon as you send it to the cloud and you send it to Joe's cloud, which happens to be served in Russia, and you lose all your stuff because you're not doing your due diligence to check who your third parties well, yeah, are. And schools and schools like many other organizations are becoming more cloud focused, right? right? They're like, why are we running all these servers ourselves? Like, this is not what we're good at. This is not what we do. You know, I don't want to stand this stuff up. I'd rather pay a monthly fee, have somebody else, you know, take it as, you know, it's their headache. Anybody on a browser can go and then get to that service. Um, but, you know, we, we, we do need to do more to think about how we, uh, you know, vet these partners during, you know, procurement and with, with our contracts. Um, and I think, you know, that there's there's definitely much more that we're going to need to do in the education sector around that that issue. So this is probably a trick question or it's probably a question that has really no good answer to it. But so when you look at schools, at least let's let's talk to your participating schools that are sharing in their own in, in the intelligence that you provide. How do you find that they're generally dealing with cybersecurity? Are they do they have set staffs that are focused specifically on the IT network or like there's a I know there's a school district here that have like a they have a staff of three that deals with the infrastructure and then some gym teacher at a remote facility is in charge of IT at that facility. What do you find as the commonality or is there one or is it just kind of everybody well, does their not, own thing? Yeah. I mean, the situation that you describe is actually not super atypical. Um, school districts in general are understaffed with respect to IT. Um, so in the private sector, you might see one like lower level uh, tech support person for every 300 devices or so, or hundred users even uh, in K-12 uh, it wouldn't be surprising to see one support, you know, person for every 1,200 mm-hmm. uh, users. Um, and so, and mostly their job is to make sure things are running, right? Uh, that people can get to their systems, um, that when things are broken, they get fixed, when the lights go out. That, you know, basically in some respects for IT, it's like anything that's plugged in. If the copier goes down, if the bell system goes down, it's not even, you know, what you would consider uh, classic sort of uh, IT um, uh, you know, with respect to security, um, so, so, you know, not every school district has sort of a full-time IT person in general. Larger school districts absolutely have teams. Uh, but even the larger school districts, many of them don't have dedicated security people, uh, right? And so it may be other duties as assigned. There may be, it may be the network administrator that has given those duties. Um, and, you know, as a result, in many cases, IT staff feel, you know, sort of undergunned, uh, overwhelmed, uh, not enough time. And in many respects, like they're not getting, it's not, it's not so much they don't know what to do sometimes as uh, they don't get the support they need to implement what they want to do. And sometimes that's money and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times that's time, but sometimes it is support for sort of cultural changes in the organization. And so the example there I would give is like multi-factor authentication. 
right? It's a control that works. Like, I mean, it, you know, there's better ways to do it. Yes, we understand. But like having it is better than not having it. By, by a lot, it's a lot better. It protects you against, you know, email-based phishing attacks very effectively, right? And, and attacks, you know, account compromise, period, right? Um, but when that, you know, implementing MFA, even if it doesn't cost a lot of money, depending on how you roll it out, if it creates an inconvenience, right? Um, the leadership in school districts may say, you know, we're not, you know, we're not willing to do that. It's just too much, too far. Uh, it takes time away and it creates inconvenience. We're not going to do it. And, you know, that leaves IT folks in a rough spot, right? And it, and it does lead some of the more security-minded IT folks to burn out. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the talks I give, I, I kind of equate it to uh, the Marvel uh, universe and the, the series of movies. Uh, and if you think about Thor sort of before and after his uh, initial fight with Thanos, <laughs> right. I mean, afterwards, he was so discouraged. <laughs> you know, we have fat Thor who's, you know, burnt out, fat, drunk. Video um, gaming. To the extent, I guess, that a superhero can get drunk. But, um, you know, it's, it's a situation where he felt like he can't, can't win and he's not getting the support. And so, uh, what you know, just sort of distraught. And in some cases, we do find that. And I think, you know, in the community, I think people have a chance then to share ideas with each other, uh, be talking to people who understand their own situations, and then have practical and tactical ideas on how to, kind of convince people to, to move forward and, and get the support they need to start implementing controls that will make a difference and protect their students and their staff um, and get the support, uh, you know, that they need. That's a great point. You mentioned resources. Do you find some of these schools are still using legacy operating systems like Windows XP, Windows Vista? And I say that only because I'm aware of a school district here that had a problem and some of their systems were Windows Vista and Windows XP, which is basically saying the door's open, come on through. Uh, so less and less do I see it sort of widespread, but schools do maintain a number of sort of uh, specialized proprietary apps, right, for all sorts of things, including like IoT stuff like HVAC controls. And some of that stuff is running on super old operating systems. You know, maybe they're using Flash mm -hmm. as the interface to update, you know, settings and things like that. Um, they are exposed to the internet. Um, you know, many, many vendors who, who run these products, you know, ask you to sort of put them in your uh, 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 demilitary zone so they could just get to them without any uh, 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 restrictions so they can make their updates. Or, or in some cases, they're not being updated at all. So unfortunately, um, you know, that legacy IT is definitely a big um, issue. And uh, we're certainly seeing it being taken advantage of as well. I mean, it seems pretty clear that there is some class of threat actors that is just using, you know, uh, search engines to find vulnerable and unpatched systems and just do what they can to drop malware on it. And then they kind of figure out later what kind of organization it is and how they can monetize it. Right. And schools are absolutely getting wrapped up in those sorts of attacks. So, you know, they're, they're subject to the sort of targeted stuff as well as sort of that drive-by and the legacy stuff is a real issue. I mean, and th they're also increasingly uh, deploying like uh, uh, IoT video cameras, for instance, right? As, as sort of, for physical security, I mean, this <laughs> yeah, is the irony, right. right? They put them in to increase security in the building around physical security, and then they open a door for cyber criminals to get in. Yeah, and I got to believe that a lot of their networks probably have, uh, you'd like to think they have good admin 
um, protections, but how much shadow IT are you finding? Are they finding on their networks? Especially with students who are probably smarter than the IT folks who are figuring ways around it and then, you know, putting up, you know, Bitcoin mining and <laughs> BitTorrent servers and all that kind of stuff is, I got to believe, is probably an issue as well. Uh, any school district that has got middle and high school kids has those kids hacking against their own networks. I, I, I guarantee it. Um, some of it is curiosity. Um, some of it is boredom. Some of it is just uh, mischievous. Uh, some of it is, frankly, just downright uh, malicious. Right. And so we see everything from like the classic Ferris Bueller changing uh, absences in grades uh, to, yeah, setting up cryptocurrency miners um, phishing teachers, uh, blasting out emails, you know, defacing websites, and social media accounts of the school districts. Uh, it's definitely a problem. And definitely devices do get plugged in uh, to the network that are sort of not authorized. Um, that actually happens not only by students, but by teachers as well, who are bringing in, you know, neat and nifty tools that they have heard about. Or maybe they feel like uh, Wi-Fi is weak in their part of the building, so they're just going to go ahead and drop another Wi-Fi access point on their network. Um, and things kind of spin out of control from there. So just even having a handle on all of the applications, um, all of the devices and types of devices on networks can be a challenge for districts. Um, in that respect, you know, I think school districts, to the extent that they've cared about this issue, have focused much more on external actors getting in to district resources. You know, the, 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 the prototypical hacker, you know, maybe sitting at a desk in another country. Um, but Schools face a variety of internal threats uh, as well. And some of that is what you might consider shadow IT teachers who find a neat app or tool that they want to use with their kids, which may be terrific and exactly what we want them to do as long as somebody takes a look at the security and privacy of that, right? But then you also have kids uh, who are doing stuff as well, maybe trying to get around internet blocks so they can play a game or reach that social media site that's blocked, um, you know, so there's all sorts of things that are going on. And it's definitely as a school district IT person, you're definitely playing whack-a-mole. Right. And uh, I got to think a lot of that comes down to policy. We talked a little bit beforehand that, you know, a lot of these, most school districts don't have reporting requirements or privacy requirements. So there's, you know, limited things they have to do. And in other industries have compliance standards. Obviously, healthcare has HIPAA and the defense industrial base has CMMC and all that stuff, but there's really nothing for school. So if I'm a school district, you know, if I have to make policies, I'm going to make people mad and I got to write them and get them approved and people to sign them. So I'm guessing that that's probably not something a lot of them do. Is that a resource that your group tries to put together to help schools say, hey, here's a template for a policy that will, that will at least start you down the road to lessening your cyber risk? Yeah. So, well, so a little clarification on that. So actually on the privacy side, student privacy side, sure, right, yes. staff privacy Yep. The student privacy side, there is uh, schools are a little bit more robust. Uh, now, we have the federal law, FERPA, yep. that governs student privacy. It's not a terrific law. It was, it was written in 74 originally when school records were stored in filing cabinets. So it's sort of better on privacy than security. It's not really a security mm -hmm. uh, law. And there's been a wave of state-based student privacy law in the meantime. Um, it's a little bit better. It's mostly focused on vendors and what vendors can and should do. Um, but basically, in terms of federal or state law, compliance requirements on school districts around security uh, are non-existent. Um, I think that's unlikely to hold. Um, I think we have seen states and even the federal government begin to consider uh, what you know, regulations might look like 
sort of like they exist in healthcare and financial services, because the data that schools hold is sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of helping school districts with policies, absolutely. We do have members who are sharing policies back and forth about what's worked in their districts. Uh, we're also working on a neat project right now, um, which is to help define what we think are maybe the top 10 or 12 controls, tactical controls that every school district should have in place as part of a quote-unquote reasonable security program. And I say quote-unquote reasonable security program because that's sort of code across all sectors for like, you know, having some kind of a good security program in place. Um, But in many cases, that is not well-defined. And while there's lots of guidance and advice on what organizations should do, schools really don't have a very sort of basic A, B, C, D, E, tell me what to do. Uh, and, and also, you know, know that by doing those things, they will be demonstrably safer. So we're working on developing that right now. And we're looking forward to sharing that and hoping that that can maybe serve as a baseline uh, for all schools and also for the development of policies. Are you basing that off the NIST standards? Sorry, are you basing that off the NIST standard? Are you basing that off the NIST standards or... Yeah, we're definitely looking at NIST. We're looking at uh, the CIS controls, uh, the top 20 controls, which is also popular in education, just like NIST is. Uh, But then also just from the experience of practitioners and what they're seeing on their networks, right? And what I'm seeing in my tracking of public, uh, publicly disclosed school cyber incidents, right? So we want to make sure that the controls we're selecting are uh, most important uh, for schools today. You know, we'll have to revisit it in six months and a year when that landscape changes, Um, One of the things that we're definitely going to do is actually map to those frameworks so that people know that we're not making this up, right? And that if they have adopted an existing framework, they know where to find it, that we're building on prior art, and that you could map from this to CIS and and to state frameworks, et cetera, right? I mean, um, we're about connecting dots, not about creating, uh, you know, yet another framework (laughs) that that people need to pay attention to, right? Right. Um, That's not the goal. So how do you think schools are handling cybersecurity training for their staff? I mean, obviously, I'm sure some schools are probably investing in know before to do some phishing testing. And then if they fail the fish test, they get sent to the, hey, take this training because you failed fish testing. But, you know, that gets kind of stale after a while, even if it's like the yearly information security training. You know, what is the what are you seeing as kind of the how are schools dealing with it? Are they dealing with it at all? Or what's that? Yeah. So, I mean, schools have at least like so on the student side, schools have. Um, been doing sort of like stranger danger and like cyberbullying kind of training or, or now they're talking about like digital citizenship, how to be a good digital citizen. Um, so that's been going on for a while. But again, that's that's not going to be a lot of a training per year for a student. It might be an assembly or something that's right. done once a year for all students. On the staff side, you know, you're probably looking at about the same thing, right? Staff may get an hour a year. It's probably an anti, you know, phishing, you know, anti-phishing type training from know before or one of their, you know, one of the many other folks who provide that kind of training. Um, maybe. And so maybe that happens. And, you know, so for instance, Texas actually just passed a law in the state where this last year, every uh, state and local government employee, including school district employees had to get trained. Um, and, you know, basically it's, you know, it's one or two hours a year. And, you know, what you might see is, you know, and what you see from, uh, you know, some of these uh, phishing trainings is that you can help people to get a little bit more skeptical and savvy in um, handling those um, attacks 
social engineering attacks, but there's still one person who's always going to. Right. Someone always clicks the link. Uh, right. So, you know, it's interesting. People have, as I've talked to, to district IT folks, they're kind of mixed on, um, on the value of those trainings. So there's, there's no question that, that awareness is, is a big deal. And that so much of this issue is a, a people problem, right? It's, 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 it's not technical failure so much as, um, you know, people making uh, mistakes or not understanding what they're seeing. Um, so obviously part of the solution would be training, but, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's impossible to get to, to solve all of those training problems, right? Uh, all of those people problems through training. So it doesn't obviate the need to spend time on putting controls in to defend yourself, to having plans for when you need to respond. So, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient, as I think what they would say. And, uh, but, you know, the, the, the training that is available does tend to be sort of pretty short term um, and pretty, uh, you know, just OK. Right. Just OK. I've written a little bit about this on LinkedIn. I'd be curious to get your opinion, but I think that the approach needs to change in the sense of we're going to do this one year training a year. We're going to cover all the topics and then you're good. You're, you know, you check that box. You need to make it, you need to do two things. You need to make it personal to them. How do they protect themselves and their information? And then it will then scope into how do we then protect the school's information? You don't have to do it an hour. You can do a 10 minute block once a month and say, Hey, here's your cybersecurity 10 minute brief. And this week, we're talking about phishing for 10 minutes. We're talking about ransomware. We're talking about insider threat. We're talking about, you know, how to secure your personal information, why your logins are probably on the dark web. You can do those very short, very quickly, but it keeps people engaged over the course of forever. You don't have to begin, don't have to be long, but at least they're, they're thinking about those things. Oh, I remember someone talked to me about that well, and go from there. That's, I'd be curious as what your thought on that would be. Oh, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think just-in-time training and, and, and sort of small bits uh, uh, over the course of time is really important. I think there's plenty of current events you can count. And there are always being plenty of current events. Yes, that's for sure. Right? You can point to to show an example of uh, something that that has happened to maybe to somebody else, or even to the school district. Right? You know, this is an email that came into the school district. You know, an employee forwarded it to IT, so we were protected. But like, wow, look at this! I mean, there are people out there trying to scam you, right? And there are people who you know got this company or got this government or they found this vulnerability. I I think that sort of just in time training, making it personal. I mean, that's one of the things that I think is just a real conundrum in space, which is, you know, it's this culture issue, right? And that people just not getting the importance of it in schools. And I, and I think I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, you know, people get the importance of physical security in schools, right? Nobody wants a stranger, particularly, you know, who's looking to do harm to come through school doors. And if, and if somebody does, I mean, they have plans in place, you know, they will get police and law enforcement there right away. People know what to do. They have plans, they practice them. Right. But for cyber incidents, you know, it's, it's, um, those plans don't really, uh, exist yet, uh, like they should. We don't really have a plan for them. And that's kind of a culture issue. So, you know, the, the, we need to shift away from that once a year, one hour training, check that box, uh, to it becoming more of a cultural thing where everybody has a part to play. This is as much self-defense as, as protecting kids, which is, I mean, that's all, that's what people in schools are about, are about protecting and helping kids, right? So also making it in schools, making it about the kid, right? And about their learning and about their safety. 
right? Because right. schools will bend over backwards to keep kids safe, right? And so I think that's another leverage point uh, uh, for schools. But it's it's really got to become part of the culture. And I think, you know, technology is one of these funny things in schools. It's kind of snuck up on schools, as, uh, you know, for school leaders. It's been around in schools for 20, you know, as long as it's been the computers, there have been some computers in schools. Right. But it's only in the last five or 10 years where computers have really become uh, critical to how schools operate. And certainly with COVID and the need to shift to remote learning in many places, it's really opened people's eyes at how, at how sort of digital schools are today. And, and that's not really going to change even after COVID. And that's a great segue to my next question, because obviously COVID has changed the way that schools across the country have had to do their their learning for the year. And it's different in different parts of the country. So how has that remote learning changed the cybersecurity landscape in the past year? Have you seen, so from, from let's say, end of the school year 2019 to end of the school year 2020 and into 2021, has that moved from a more hybrid people at home, you know, more devices outside of the school network, so that surface attack area is larger. Has that increased the number of attacks or reduced it, or how has it changed? You know, it's it's uh, that's an interesting uh, story. Um, in many, so uh, t- two points. One is it did lead to a whole new class of attacks against schools. Um, it's something that is, I think, popularly known as Zoom bombing, but I think <laughs> it's better better described as class invasions or meeting invasions, right? Because um, I think that that's much more descriptive of, of what's going on. And also these incidents are in no way limited to the Zoom platform. Right. Right. Um, so those didn't, I mean, that wasn't even in anybody's vernacular until about March of last year. Uh, and then really from March to like May, that was the primary sort of thing that schools are struggling with. And, you know, frankly, that's continued well into the fall. And, you know, thankfully, I'm hearing about that far, far less. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the other types of incidents, ransomware incidents, data breaches, uh, you know, targeted phishing attacks and things like that. um, You know, I think the general trend has been that schools have just been under more and more. uh, They've been using more and more incidents. Um, I, I don't know how much it is because of COVID. Uh, other, rather than schools just being more reliant on technology. Uh, I think one thing for sure, though, with, because of COVID, is that schools were much less resilient to these sorts of attacks, right? So if there was a denial of service attack or a ransomware outbreak or, you know, something, uh, denial of service attack, uh, in the time of remote learning, school stops, right? Johnny and Susie, you know, can't connect to their classroom. They go talk to mom or dad. Say I, I'm, you know, no school. You know, Mrs. Jones isn't on the computer. I, I'm, I guess I'm, you know, I'm going to go play now. And the first thing the parent does is they pick up the phone and they call the principal. Say what's going on, and you know, but if you can't connect to that class, you can't do teaching and learning. Um, when kids are physically in the school building and their network goes down for whatever reason, teachers going to say, look, close your devices. We're going to take out the classroom set of textbooks. We're going to have a conversation and we're just going to sort of roll with it. Teachers are great at that. And so it is a disruption, but not in the same way. So I think that's that, you know, that lack of resiliency uh, that, that has caused schools to really struggle with these incidents much more. And I think it's really raised the awareness of school leaders, but also of parents of the reliance on technology. Um, you know, that, that frankly has been there before, but I think it's in everybody's faces now and they see it 
Um, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting story. I, you know, hopefully people will come away and write uh, better incident response plans as right. a result. And then when they, you know, create them, they will be thinking about IT and then hopefully about IT security as well. But, um, you know, we'll see. That's work to be done. Hopefully they write that incident response plan and then they test the incident response plan to make sure it works oh, when they have the incident. And they put the budget against it. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, yep. little things. Yeah, little things. Right. So how do you see the cybersecurity landscape changing for schools in the next year or so? What's, I mean, take a crystal ball and tell us what the future looks like. Well, you know, so um, I'm going to give you a good news and bad news uh, story about that. So I think, uh, let me start with the bad news. And that is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, unfortunately, in, in, you know, while my work is, you know, largely raised on, largely been based on raising awareness about this issue uh, and trying to get school leaders and school boards to be proactive, right, to, to start to put protections in place before they experience an incident. Um, unfortunately, it feels like this is still a little bit of an uphill battle. And, um, you know, until, uh, you know, this becomes a bigger issue for K-12, I think we're going to keep suffering incidents, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, until it becomes a big enough issue that people act. So unfortunately, I, I, I'm afraid that, you know, all signs point to, you know, incidents continuing to happen to schools, um, uh, districts, you know, being built out of, hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars, student and staff data being stolen and used for identity theft and credit fraud. Now, the good news, though, is that we are getting some traction, right? And through things like, you know, conversations like this, where people can, you know, educate themselves and maybe then go and ask their school board members or their principals what their schools are doing, Uh, or maybe talk to uh, a state or federal legislator and say, hey, uh, schools are struggling uh, with the cybersecurity thing, um, how can we help them? Are there resources at the federal federal level that can help? Are there resources at the state level that can help? Um, you know, those conversations are good. And then through organizations like K-12-6, right, we didn't exist uh, about a few months ago, right? So, you know, and our hope is that by, you know, getting more people um, aware of the issue, by helping, uh, you know, connect people who care about this issue and working together, that we can help improve the, you know, the, the defense of all, you know, uh, the subsequent defense of all schools. Uh, but, you know, again, I don't want to overstate, you know, this is a long, you know, this is a, a, a long road. I mean, the good news is that, you know, we can get some quick wins, you know, for instance, if we can help define what we think are a reasonable set of controls for all schools to have and help them implement them. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of legacy devices, right? There are ways to lock those down better even if you're forced to use these outdated systems, right? So if we can help people to do those sorts of things, implement multi-factor authentication, uh, block macros, you know, uh, restrict administrative rights to machines to only those who absolutely need them, you know, close down RDP and other internet-facing services that are absolutely a problem, right? And they're being exploited, right? If we can help every school to do that, we'll be in a demonstrably better place. Is it going to stop every attack? No, right? No way. But uh, hopefully those bad guys will do what they do is they'll just move on and find another soft target, right? And um, while I don't wish others ill, um, you know, uh, I'm focused on trying to protect uh, schools and students and teachers. Right. So I think I think churches are probably churches are probably next. Would be my guess if they're not already yeah, getting founded. Could, but yeah, it could be. I, I think they might argue that they've they've are uh, <laughs> they're not necessarily next. That's true. Yes. Students, so but, yeah. I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. I make you the cyber K twelve czar for the year 
or for the day, what's the first thing you do? Oh, boy. Um, first thing I do. I mean, I, I, I think that the first thing, well, so there's, there's, uh, I think this is a leadership issue, right? I think this is a people issue, right? So uh, in education, uh, states are the, the bodies that, that are primarily responsible. Federal government has a role, but uh, states have a role. And I, and I actually think that, you know, I think talking to governors, to state legislatures, to state departments, to leadership of state departments of education, I think it's important to impress upon them that this is an issue that is a big deal. Uh, it's a risk uh, to uh, their school systems and also the direction they're pushing school systems to take advantage of all this technology. Um, and I'd also sit down with um, federal leaders, right? Because these are incidents that are happening across state borders. They're, they're, some of these attacks are being launched from overseas, right? Um, this is, a, you know, th- these are public institutions. They're not well-resourced and we, we need help, right? We're going to need regulations. We're going to need policy. We're going to need resources, um, you know, and I think, you know, then otherwise, I think, you know, this is a lot of it is about the basics and helping schools uh, get the resources they need to get the basics in place. Uh, so you mentioned this cybersecurity framework, right? So just or, you know, the CIS 20, just get the basic stuff in place, lowest maturity level. Right. If I could wave my wand and get everybody to do that. I mean, honestly, you might be preventing, you know, 80 percent of what I see happening against schools. Um and that would go a long way to making things better. So, you know, we can't let um, uh, perfect be the enemy of, of uh, good and better. And I think the goal really has to be is just to make a little bit of progress every day. And then the sector will, uh, you know, continue up sort of that maturity curve. And, um, you know, but we're just going to have to sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, you know, one little step, one little step at a time. Well, you have my vote for, for the K-12 cybersecurity czar when, when it comes to this election time. So if people want more information on K-12-6 or K-12 cybersecure, give me, uh, give me those addresses again. Yeah, so that's k12cybersecure.com or k126k12six.org. Great, Doug. I very much appreciate your time. It's a great conversation, and hopefully we can maybe revisit in a couple months and see if we've gotten any better. Uh, absolutely be pleased to do so. Thanks so much, Darren. Thanks. That's going to do it for this episode of the Cyber Guy podcast. Again, I want to thank Doug Levin for being my guest this week. I hope you found value in the conversation we have. If so, spread the information to your friends. You have friends that have kids in school. Make them aware of what the threats are and how bad guys are looking at educational entities and facilities and information to to do bad things. Because, again, if you can understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk and proceed wisely. Knowledge is protection, so share the knowledge where you can. If you have questions about this podcast or questions regarding future podcasts, questions about the FBI, hit me up, Darren at the cyberguy.com. Cyber is spelled C-Y-B-U-R. You can also find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash I-N slash Darren Mott, D-A-R-R-E-N-M-O-T-T. Again, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy your weekend. Thanks again.